I think most people who care deeply about justice and mercy can remember what it felt like when we first really started to care. We ached at hurt we saw. We yearned to help address it. For me, that came from a little girl in an orphanage in Calcutta. She was two, but the size of an infant. Her eyes were crossed, a beautiful brown. I picked her up from a huge room full of cribs and held her for a very long time. But when I tried to set her back down, she held on. I tried gently to pull her off, but she gripped me so tight her fingernails dug into the back of my neck. Finally, I got her back into her crib, but tears just started racing down my face as I considered how she would likely never have a mother to hold her, or a father to protect her, or tell her how pretty she was. It's precious kids like that, and also just knowing how much God cares about each of them that led me to my current work, and also led my wife and I to become adoptive parents and to do foster care. It's a true passion for me. But I also have to admit this, there have been many times when that passion ran dry, when I'm no longer carried by love, just consumed by work. I get worn thin, exhausted, and sometimes just plain lost. So here's a big question. What can lead us home from a place like that? What restores our first love, not just to keep us going for another month, but to sustain us in work of justice and mercy for a lifetime? Join me today as we dig into these questions together and to what I believe are some very significant answers with Ruth Haley Barton. to Justice and the Inner Life, presented by the Christian Alliance for Orphans. We'll explore what it takes to sustain a heart of justice and mercy over a lifetime. Here's your host, Jed Medifin. I'm joined today by Ruth Haley Barton, who is founder of the Transforming Center, and also a wife and mother, friend, and speaker, and author of a number of tremendous books on integrating the spiritual disciplines into our daily lives, which... I have personally valued a great deal. So, Ruth, it is wonderful to have you here for Justice in the Inner Life. It's good to be with you. So, Ruth, you described very convincingly that something is fundamentally wrong, something out of whack with the way that many of us, maybe most of us, live today. And uh, as I read it, you're describing something that we all can't help but see or at least feel deep down. Um, that, that so many of us, and, and perhaps especially leaders who are engaging the world in its broken places, are, are often weary and frazzled and perhaps on the very edge of burnout. Uh, what do you, first of all, see as the, the heart of this problem? Where is it coming from? Well, I think one of the things that seems to happen is that we get into these, we get into ministry, we get into um, actions that have to do with making the world a better place in Jesus' name, and we do that out of the relationship that we have with Jesus. Usually it happens because Jesus has done something really wonderful for us and we want to uh, express gratitude, but we also want to share the goodness of what we've experienced with others. So I think it begins in a really pure and beautiful place in, in response to God and God's goodness to us. But somehow over time, it seems like our activity for God and all that we do for God sometimes at some point in a very subtle way begins to overtake the relationship itself. And somehow in a very subtle way, we come to a place where believing that what we do for God is more important than the relationship that we have with God and the relationship that we have with God and the intimacy that we experienced early on oftentimes slips away before we even know it. I think it's like a marriage, you know, like a marriage begins with intimacy and love and a desire to really be a blessing to one another. And then over time, the business of life and the mm -hmm. stresses, yeah. and all the things that we get involved in 
cause us to lose track of the relationship and all of a sudden we're just busy and doing and life is really full and we've lost each other, you know, not in the sense that we're not still married, but we've lost our connection with each other. And that's what I see happening. The other thing that I think is really true that especially in the Protestant tradition, the Protestant evangelical tradition, we are known by our activism. You know, that's a part of who we are in our DNA. And there are other traditions that aren't as much like that as we are. Um, but for Protestants, that's part of what we do. It's part of how we define ourselves is by evangelism and mission and getting out there and doing something. So it's a strength of the Protestant evangelical tradition, but our strengths can also become our greatest weakness. And I think in some ways that's what's happening right now. So, so when you are interacting with leaders, whether folks in justice work or pastors or, or, or just others, what common threads do you hear as you talk about these themes and things that you kind of consistently are hearing from? folks out there in the in the field everybody's tired we, let's just say that there's no place i go churches ministry organizations no place i go where the leaders are not tired and stressed and struggling with the question of how do i find a sustainable life in ministry i think also in the last 30 years or so because of some of what's gone on in the life of the church that we have also incorporated or even imbibed a sort of success mentality and a success orientation. And I think there's a lot of things that play into that. But um, this attempt to be successful, even in ministry, uh, by looking at numbers and the bottom line and how far we're reaching here and there, there, there is the authentic desire to do good and to meet more needs. But I think there's all, also a success orientation mm-hmm. and also even sometimes a competitiveness that comes for us in in just our Western culture or culture in general. And I think right now it's aided by technology also, by the fact that we're able to always be showing people what we're doing and how much we're doing. And, and seeing uh, what they're and doing. Seeing what they're doing and charting it all out and who's doing more. And we don't realize how insidious that is and how we've taken it deep into our psyches without even realizing that that is perhaps a part of what's motivating us. Yeah. And, and you have been very transparent in your in your writings that this is something you've struggled with. You're very missional, yeah. and you're yeah. someone who likes to get out there and do. I do, and, yeah. And you share that at certain times in life that has brought you to places of strain. And 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 yeah. what what do you feel has has brought a big change in that? Mm-hmm. Well, I think you know the first time I realized what was going on in my life, it was definitely a sense that I wasn't well. You know, that I, I was not living well in my body, you know, so I was carrying extra weight around. I wasn't exercising. I wasn't eating right. I was not caring for the physical human self that God has given me. Also, my human relationships were being shortchanged, and I knew it. You know, people in my family were not getting as much from me, much as much attention as they longed for and desired. I also recognized that there was no place for me to pay attention to the deeper work of God in my own life. I was so focused on what God was doing through me that I was repressing some of the things that God needed to do in me. Um, the, the cultivation of my relationship with God, but also, you know, places of unresolved pain and anger and resentment, those things that build up. And there was just no time and space in my life to attend to that and to give God access to those places in my life. So there was a drivenness as well, uh, performance-oriented drivenness that I uh, fortunately, by God's grace, began to recognize as being unhealthy. You know, that there's, there's a difference between being called and being driven. Amen. Amen to that. <laughs> so when I saw that it, there was really more drivenness than calledness, yeah. that was sobering as well. Yeah. And it's often hard to tell the difference between the two. So it sounds it like is. there's a lot of yes, reflection and a, yeah. and a process in exactly. discerning that. 
Yes, yeah. exactly. But I think when you can look at your life and know you're not living it well, and that if you continue to stay on that path, you're going to probably flame out or burn out. It is very sobering. Um, and when the people around you are sacrificing and suffering more than they should, um, those are all very sobering things. And you realize, I just don't think this is God honoring for one thing. And secondly, I'm not willing to do this with my life. This is not good. It's like what Jethro said to Moses in the Old Testament. He said, what you are doing is not good. So there was this sense of the way I'm living my life is not good. It's not glorifying to God in any way. Yeah. And and you can imagine Moses at that moment feeling and saying to Jethro, but Jethro, you don't understand. I have to yeah. do these things. These people that's need right. me, right? And that's yes. that's so mm-hmm. often how we all feel, right? That yes. Whether mm-hmm. it's the, the mission or caring for certain children yeah. or addressing issues, it's it, it feels yeah. inescapable. We have yes. to do it. Yes, and the needs are very great. If you're in touch with the world at all, the world's are the needs of the world are very great. And uh, obviously beyond what any one of us can meet. Well, you know, this podcast really centers on the idea that, uh, which is something that you express frequently as well, that, mm-hmm. that the, that, that our inner spiritual life in Christ and our external service and the ministry mm-hmm. and work of justice and mercy are not as separate as, as so often is imagined. Um, right. that they are really are interdependent and utterly, mm-hmm. ultimately cannot survive long without each other. Yes. Why is that? There is such, um, a beautiful, seamless relationship, I think, between our spiritual formation, which is prerequisite to our ability to do, do, discern the will of God and then our ability to do the will of God. So I take it straight from Romans 12 too, where Paul establishes a cause and effect relationship between our intentional engagement and the deeper spiritual journey where he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that, and he really right there establishes a cause and effect relationship between Uh, our commitment to transformation and our ability to discern the will of God, which of course is prerequisite hopefully to doing the will of God. So there's this seamless movement from transformation in the depths of my being into the image of Christ, the ability to discern what is uniquely mine to do, and then from there to actually do what God is calling us to do in terms of mission. And then when we get involved in mission, eventually we're going to get cast upon the limits. We're going to become aware of the limits of our own human abilities. So then we come back to prayer. We're cast back to this place of prayer and formation and inviting God to do his transforming work in us. And then from there we discern again and further uh, what God is calling us to do. Then we do that and then we come to the limits again and then we're cast back into the life of prayer and our own need for transformation and deeper spiritual wisdom to meet the needs of the world. And so that's how I see it as being completely seamless and interrelated yeah i don't see any bifurcation in that at all and it's it disturbs me greatly that we have set up a false bifurcation in our culture between formation and mission as though they were two separate things when really they're um so deeply related and i think that you know that is the difficulty human minds try to make categories out of things and they try to make them as fundamentally different when in fact they are aspects of our spiritual life that that belong profoundly together. So let's get into the nitty gritty of, of practices that bring them back together. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you feel like are, are, are some of the most essential, some of the, the foundational spiritual practices that particularly for those who are on long journeys of justice and mercy? Well, solitude and silence 
for sure, because solitude and silence is the place where, number one, we allow God to replenish us at the soul level, where we allow God to tell us who we are beyond all of our doing. You know, Romans 8 says that that's, there is a place within each of us where God's spirit witnesses with our spirits about the fact that we are children of God. Beyond all the doing, there's our basic identity. So in solitude and silence, we come home once again to who we really are in Christ. We also allow God to replenish us at the soul level in a way that only God can do. Only God can really replenish the soul so that it can continue to do the work that God has called us to do. Um, silence is a place where we wait on God in the midst of the great unfixables of our lives. And when we get involved in mission, we are carried out to the edges where human wisdom fails, you know, where we see the limits of what we can do in terms of uh, solving the problems and the issues of the world. And in silence, we wait on God. You know, Psalm 62 says that in silence, my soul waits for you and you alone, O God. From you alone comes my salvation. So we literally learn how to wait on God for God's salvation for us and for the world. So I would say to begin with, solitude and silence would be the most significant. It's also the place where God gives us wisdom, you know, that wisdom that's given to us as a gift each and every time that it's given. Discernment is a gift. It's not something that we can force. God gives it as we sit and wait. And we need wisdom when we get involved in the very complex issues of life in our world. Um, prayer, of course, would be significant, not only because it's where we cultivate our friendship with God, but also because that is the place where we uh, receive the wisdom that God has to give in that conversational back and forth relationship that um, is characteristic of any growing relationship is that we're talking back and forth with each other. Um, I would say that discernment, the practice of discernment, um, and even the habit of discernment, we define discernment as being able to recognize and respond to the presence and the activity of God, both in the ordinary moments of our lives and in the decisions that we face. So the practice of discernment, being able to see where God is at work so that we can join God in it, um, as well as entering into a discernment practice when we are facing important decisions in our personal lives and in our lives together. And then the other practice I would mention would be Sabbath keeping. I literally would not still be alive on this planet if I had not established a serious um, commitment to Sabbath. Amen. There has to be a time when we take our hand off the plow and we say, you know, God is still at work in the world, even when I'm pulling back and resting as God has instructed me to do. God created us as human beings. He knows us. He knows we have limits. He gave us the Sabbath as a gift because he knows that we need it. And he is at work while we are resting. And so, when I um, practice Sabbath, I look to the Sabbath throughout my week, and I'm like, I can get through anything if I know the Sabbath is coming. And then I might scream into my Sabbath time, hating my life, feeling way too busy, too exhausted. And I'm thinking, I'm never going to want to reengage that life. But somehow with that 24 hours of rest, somewhere along the way at 18 hours or 12 hours, something like that, I begin to envision engaging my life again in ministry and God has replenished me and I'm grateful for my life and I'm grateful for my ministry. And by the time I'm finished with the Sabbath, I'm ready to reengage again. So without Sabbath keeping, none of us can sustain for the long haul of our lives in ministry. And God gave us the Sabbath as a gift because he knows we need it. And so for us to refuse Sabbath keeping, I think is an expression of grandiosity that will kill us in the end. 
I really identify with that, Ruth. <laughs> I, I feel like Sabbath really, I, I think of it as one of the greatest gifts of my life. Yes. You know, n- mm-hmm. not only necessary, it is necessary, but just such a, such a gift that it's, it's yeah. kind of like someone saying, Hey, here are the keys to my beach house. I want you to right. go use it. Mm-hmm. And for me to yeah. not use it would just be such mm-hmm. a wrong. It's not a legalistic That's thing. Right. It's just missing out on yes. this blessing. It's saying yes to the, to one of the best gifts we've gotten given. Yeah. By God yeah. himself. Let's loop back to solitude for just a moment. For, for folks who mm-hmm. haven't experienced that in any extended way, maybe other than a, you know, quiet time in their morning devotions or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I, well, first of all, I'd mention your, your books, um, Invitation to Solitude and Silence, I think would be a great way for folks to, to explore that further. But just briefly describe what, you know, what, what the essence of when you say solitude, what do you mean in terms oh, of going yes. away for a certain period of time, that kind of thing? Yeah, well, I'm glad you've asked because I think definitions are really important, especially for those of us who are engaging these as Christian practices because, you know, the world talks about these things in, in its own way. But a Christian definition of solitude would be pulling back from our life in the company of others in order to give God our full and undivided attention. And so um, when we pull away like that, we're saying my relationship with God is worthy of my best attention, and I'm going to give God my best attention for a while. And I'm also going to give God full and complete access to my soul, more access to my soul than when I'm rushing around doing all that I do. And someone has said that you'd be surprised what your soul wants to say to God. Uh, you'd also be surprised what God wants to say to your soul. And you're not going to hear it unless you pull back and give God your complete and undivided attention. Now, silence is in many ways related to solitude, but it's also a bit distinct, and I do want to mention it, because silence is pulling back not only from our life in the company of others, but it's also pulling back from our addiction to noise and to words and to activities as a way of shoring up our sense of self, and and at times, honestly, keeping ourselves distracted from what's really going on at the soul level. Um, some of the emptiness that we feel, whether or not there's ever some, whether or not there's something really going on between us and God. In the silence, we face what's really true at the soul level, and whether, rather than trying to fix it or problem solve it or distract ourselves from it, we are open and receptive to God. And in that way, I would say that solitude and silence, the way I'm describing it here, is for many of us profoundly different than the typical quiet time that we've been taught because the typical quiet time that we've been taught is often very full of human striving and human activity. I mean, I remember when God first began to invite me into solitude and silence out of a very Christian lifestyle. I mean, I was saved when I was four years old in a pastor's home. I'd been practicing quiet time for years, but I began to recognize that my quiet time was still full of my own human effort and human striving. You know, my praying around the world in 30 days or less, my inductive Bible study guides where I fill in all the blanks and the achievement part of me loved filling in the blanks, you know, t- listening to the teaching tape that I missed on Sunday from the preaching, um, the Christian self-help books when those came into in, into the, you know, publishing world, you know, I'm reading my Christian self-help, trying really, really hard to change myself. All of that was me deciding what I needed and trying to bring some sort of human effort to it. Solitude and silence is really very different than that. It begins with this receptivity that silence enables us to to find our way into, where we sit quietly in God's presence, maybe with our hands open and just breathing in touch with our, our breath that God gives us in each and every moment of our lives and saying to God, you know what most needs to be done in my life, you're going to have to do. You're going to have to initiate that with me. You're going to have to bring the wisdom because I clearly don't have it. Um, and on top of that, it's really good just to commune with God and not to need to do so much. You know, to move from communication, which is often about words, to communion, 
which is more about that just intimate being with that we have with, with those that we're most intimate with. Mm, yes. And in so many ways, both solitude and silence go head to head with the great disease of our era of, of distraction. And, mm-hmm. and we all feel that, right? Just with, you know, the, the yes. way technology invades every crevice mm-hmm. of life and the demands yeah. of work and, and, you know, youth activities, all the things, there is this continual distraction. And so this is directly challenging that. And, um, yes. Yeah, and, and thus it can be jarring to our systems, right, which are as accustomed to distraction as a, an addict is to his drug. And so there can be a feeling of withdrawal in entering into that in a certain sense. Right, and there's really nothing in contemporary culture right now that supports what we're talking about here. I remember giving a talk on solitude and silence in a rural part of Illinois, and one of the guys came up to me afterwards and he said, you know, I'm a farmer, Um it, solitude, times of solitude and silence are built into my life naturally. When I'm out on the tractor, I'm all by myself. I can't hear anything. I'm all by myself for hours. When I'm out working in the field, he said, um, in my life, it's, there's, there, these times of solitude and silence really built right in. And I think that's very, very true that we don't have any natural places anymore. Now that we have phones that we can use in our cars, now that we can take our phones and our computers on our vacations, um, now that every place has Wi-Fi, now we have to work really hard to carve out any time when we're inaccessible to the rest of our lives so that we can be fully available to God. And it's, it's, I think it's become quite a stressor actually, um, because now we have to be so much more intentional about uh, unplugging from our technologies in addition to everything else. We often think of spiritual disciplines as very private matters, and, and some of these things we're just talking about with solitude and silence are, but yeah. you make a really compelling case in a number of your books that there's also a very important communal aspect to spiritual mm-hmm. practices. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Why is that communal part um, an imp- important part of the vision? Well, um, for one thing, we can't make radical changes in our lives without a community who understands what we're trying to do. So to have spiritual companions who know that we are trying to create space for solitude and silence in our lives out of a place of deep desire for a connection with God. Um, people in our lives who also are practicing discernment so they're able to recognize with us the presence and the activity of God in our lives and actually affirm that. It's a very different experience than being left alone with that kind of an experience. I also think that Sabbath keeping is a, it's, it's a practice that was a communal discipline in the very beginning. It was given to a whole community of people who learned how to practice it together. And what they were practicing actually was trust. As a community, they were practicing trusting God one day a week. They were to work six days a week, and then on the seventh day, they were going to trust God to care for the earth and trust God for what they needed. And it wouldn't have been possible for them to do that alone. Everybody was practicing it together, and it became actually an an identifying feature of their life together in community. I mean, they were known by their Sabbath practice. And so it's very hard to practice Sabbath if you're... Christian community doesn't, because what happens is that the church can begin to load all sorts of activities into Sundays, and it becomes actually quite difficult if you don't have a community that practices Sabbath to find a way to do it on your own, because everything, even in your Christian community, is pulling against you, uh, trying to, you know, bring you into all sorts of activities. And so um, I think spiritual community, in its very essence, 
is a group of people who understand our deepest spiritual desires. They're in touch with their own spiritual desires, and we're supporting one another in ordering our lives around what it is we say we really want spiritually. And that makes it much more possible for, for us actually to shape our lives around our deepest spiritual desires. So, so what would be some of the kind of specific practices that you might recommend to, say, the leader of an organization, of a, you know, a ministry that's serving, um, whether it's orphans or human trafficking or homelessness, yes. uh, and, yeah. and that individual wants to cultivate corporate practices amongst mm-hmm. her or his team, what, what, what are some that you would recommend there? Well, I think we can incorporate some silence into our times together. And that's a beautiful practice to practice together. In fact, um, you know, I know International Justice Mission, they've instituted 830 stillness, which means that for a half an hour uh, every day, they're all being still in God's presence in their own spaces, but being still and preparing for their day by being quiet in God's presence. Uh, we practice fixed hour prayer in the Transforming Center, which means praying at fixed hours of the day. And... Um, that's a beautiful way for us to stop our human activity. And they're very short, simple little prayer services that are written out, liturgical prayer services. They take 10 or 15 minutes at the most. And you, you do that all together or, or you do it at mm-hmm. the same time? Yeah. No, together. we do it together when mm-hmm. we're together. We, we, we're not able to do them all. Now, on retreat, we do them all. We do morning, midday, evening, and night. So, I, I, pardon the pun, but we do do fixed hour prayer religiously when we are on retreat. And then in the context of our work, we're not able to do it quite as much. But um, there are certain fixed hours that we pray together, and we have... Um, prayers that help us do that, and there's time built into those for the reading of scripture, and then there's silence. So we're actually building in some of these practices into the way that we are together. And it's so simple and already prepared that it doesn't put a lot of pressure on anybody to prepare them. Um, so, um, and like I said, scripture reading and silence are built in to those very simple little prayer services. So it gives us a way to practice those things together. So there are spiritual conversations that, that are really natural to us to have because we have shared language and shared experiences. And then certainly Sabbath, um, we are not on email on Sundays. Well, I'm not. So people know that no work happens in and around this organization. If you If you do that, you're choosing that, but that's not what we do as an organization. And that's really helpful because I think sometimes if you feel that other people are going to be on and trying to get work done and they're expecting you to respond, it's a whole lot harder to take your Sabbath. than if you know that everybody's off, nobody's working today and I'm not going to open up on Monday morning, you know, to 15,000 emails because nobody's been working, you know? So even the fact that we are not a church, so we don't, we don't worship together on Sundays, but we all take Sabbath, which means that none of us are working and there's no expectation that we're working. And, um, I think that makes it easier for us to engage in a Sabbath practice. Oh, and maybe I'll mention one other thing, and that is retreat, regular times of retreat. I believe that this rhythm of engagement and retreat, especially when we're involved in ministry, is so significant. So there are times when we are rightly engaged in ministry and being involved with the needs of the world. And then there are times when we retreat and we're present to God and God alone as a team, as a group times when we can commune with God together, times when we seek God together, times when we connect with each other as human beings beyond the task, times when we engage solitude and silence together and then come back and interact with each other out of the solitude and silence. So that rhythm of engagement and retreat is a communal practice for people who work together. So Ruth, as, as we're kind of wrapping up here, what, mm-hmm. what would you say to the person who's really resonating with what we're talking about here? They're saying, mm-hmm. yes, I, you know, I feel deep down I need this, but mm-hmm. it just feels like a luxury that I can't afford, you know, with my life. 
And, you know, what, what, what encouragement would you give them? Oh, there's so many ways we could go with that. If I could give two, can I give two? Absolutely. Uh, the first one, the first one is that the best thing you bring to leadership is your own transforming self. That if you continue a life that doesn't have time for seeking God in it, that doesn't have time for sitting with God and allowing God to minister to your soul, if you're not, um, allowing God to at times go back with you over your day and to notice the places where God was with you so that you can join God in what God is really doing, um, where God can perhaps confront places where you were uh, not like Christ and continue your own growth of transformation, you will eventually be destructive in the world because your leadership will become something that's not good for anyone. So your transforming presence will transform everybody and everything around you. It's hard to believe that, but it is really, really true that the best thing you bring to leadership and to ministry is your own ongoing process of transformation in Christ's presence. The other thing I will say is encouragement is actually from Dallas Willard, where he says that if you don't come apart, uh, um, if you don't come apart for a while, you will come apart after a while. I'll say that again since I stumbled. <laughs> but if you don't come apart for a while, you will come apart after a while. That is true. All of us will flame out and burn out after a while if we do not do what Jesus guided his disciples to do. And that is after a season of big ministry come apart to a deserted place with me and rest a while. That is Jesus' invitation to his disciples way back when. It's his invitation to us as his disciples now, because I believe Jesus knows that if we don't come apart and rest for a while, we will, we will start to fray around the edges, and eventually we will flame out. We will hit the wall. We will not be able to continue. I'm in it for the long haul. How about you, Jed? I am in, the, in it for the long haul. <laughs> yeah, I want to laugh. I want to sustain. And if, if I don't take these rhythms seriously, I, I won't be able to sustain for the long haul of ministry, which in the end would be the biggest tragedy. So that's my word of encouragement. If you want to sustain for the long haul, if you want God's Spirit to sustain you, then there must be time for God. There must be time for resting in God's presence so that God can enliven us for all that he is calling us to do. What an incredibly rich conversation that was. And I can affirm from personal experience that these choices and habits that Ruth recommends, a weekly Sabbath, patterns of prayer within the workday, time away in solitude and silence, they really can help restore our first love. God can use spiritual disciplines to lead us home when we're feeling weary and lost. I especially loved what Ruth said about the most important thing we have to offer others is our transforming selves, the person we are becoming. Certainly, the work we do can be of great value, but what the world needs more than anything else is not just more work being done, but women and men whose very presence feels like the presence of Jesus. The people we care for, whether the homeless or refugees or foster youth or even our own husband or wife or children, they don't just need to be tended. They need to see eyes that light up when they walk in the room. They need to hear tenderness and joy in our voices when we speak with them. They need to be loved and to know that they are. And the truth is we just can't fake that for long. It must grow as the fruit of a vibrant inner life. So if we want to love like that, there is nothing more important we can do than form habits that cultivate our inner life in Christ. If you'd like to learn more about some of these specific practices, I'd recommend Ruth's books, Invitation to Solitude and Silence, or Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. Another excellent resource is Dallas Willard's book, The Spirit of the Disciplines. But alongside whatever you read or study, don't just accumulate ideas. 
I'd encourage you to pick just one of these disciplines and start practicing it now. When it comes to the spiritual disciplines, there's really only one way to receive the gifts they carry, and that's to do them. You've been listening to Justice and the Inner Life with Jed Menefit, a production of the Christian Alliance for Orphans. To learn more about the Alliance, visit kfo.org.